0: Future Proof with Jonathan McCrae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. On News Talk.
0: Welcome back to future Proof on news talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, endometriosis affects as many as one in 10 women and girls of reproductive age globally. It causes pain, sometimes infertility, and can take surprisingly long to diagnose sometimes. So what is it and why is it so hard to treat? Well, joining me to discuss is Dr. Kate and She's Associate Professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. Uh, she is a co-author of a recent study that hopes to maybe advance our potential for finding a treatment. Um, Welcome to the program, Kate. What is endo?
1: So um, thank you for talking about this important disease. Endometriosis is remarkably common, but we know remarkably little about it. And what we do know is that in endometriosis, we see cells that look just like the lining of the womb, but they're found in the wrong place and then they grow and they proliferate and they, they menstruate, um, similar to how the womb menstruates, but then that blood gets trapped because it's not in the correct location and that results in the pain and infertility that you described, but also unfortunately other symptoms. And um, so often patients will have gastrointestinal upset, they might have widespread pain in other parts of the body and a lot of the times we just don't understand you know, how that's happening.
0: Oh, so it cells from the womb behaving as if they're in the womb doing womb stuff but they're in the wrong place
1: yes that's exactly correct so we have cells that look just like the lining of the womb but now they're found in the ovaries or the fallopian tube or other parts of the pelvic cavity where they shouldn't be Um, and then that causes all of these problems
0: is that typical in the human body to have a cell that travels around to places it's not supposed to go and and behave normally but that causes problems
1: So that is a great question. It is absolutely not typical for cells to be growing and being happy in the wrong place. Our cells should have safeguards that make them die when they um, are found in the wrong location. And also our immune system should come and deal with this problem and clear those cells out. They should be recognized as foreign invaders. But for some reason in endometriosis, that doesn't happen. Um, What we think happens when the disease is developing is that we have menstrual fluid. So when a woman is on her period, those cells go back up the fallopian tube. This actually happens in every woman. Um, And most of the times those cells should just die. But for some reason in endometriosis, those cells survive and they stick and grow in the wrong place. Um, There are probably also other ways which endometriosis can develop um, in addition to that backflow of um, period fluid. But again, we just really don't understand the full ways in which this disease develops.
0: So um, people who are familiar with this program will know the immune system often attacks foreign bodies in, in the, the, the human body when it recognizes them as such. And that can be a problem uh, in terms of re- rejecting implants or um, it could be a fantastic thing when it's identifying uh, cancer cells or um, or virus cells. When we're talking about human cells that belong to the person does the immune system have any role here in clearing out these unwanted cells when they're in the wrong place or does it just say well these are linda cells so um we'll let it go
1: yeah the immune system absolutely should be helping to clear these cells that are found in the wrong place the cells themselves should be starting to undergo cell death and the immune system should recognise that and help clear up all the rubbish of the cells dying. But unfortunately, those two things are not happening properly, those two processes, and together that works in concert to let the disease develop.
0: You'd imagine that something that's so common um, would be fairly easy to diagnose quickly. Is that the case with endo?
1: We should be able to detect endometriosis very easily because it is so common, but unfortunately we don't have a blood test or something like that that can help diagnose endometriosis. And that's why patients often go a decade before they get a diagnosis. Because really it's only if a patient and gets to the point where they need surgery and then that surgical tissue is removed and looked at by a pathologist that we can know for sure that that patient has endometriosis. And of course, surgery isn't the appropriate route for every patient. Um, but it actually makes me very hopeful. The fact that endometriosis is so common makes me very hopeful because I think that by applying these newer genomics technologies that just haven't been applied to endometriosis yet, we should be able to find biomarkers, signatures of endometriosis in the blood that we can use to identify the patients who either have endometriosis or a diagnostic biomarker, or at the very least, we should be able to develop ways to find the people that are most at risk of endometriosis and get them reviewed by a specialist much quicker
0: oh, um, have we not have we, time, we not identified a, a cohort that is more susceptible to endometriosis yet
1: so we have some idea about which people are most susceptible to endometriosis certainly in the research space but we don't yet have any tool that can be used clinically so we know that if someone has a family history of endometriosis it's much more likely that they will be diagnosed Um, We also know that there are a lot of other diseases that are more common in patients with endometriosis and other conditions that are more common, and that could help us find who's at greatest risk. Mm. So, for example, we see anxiety and depression is much more common in endometriosis patients. Um, We also see certain autoimmune conditions are more common. And so if we could build tools that could be used by doctors to kind of punch in all of this information and say, ah, this this woman is actually at really high risk of endometriosis. When we take that constellation of features, um, that would be really useful. But we just haven't been able to do the research yet. And that really comes to this uh, main challenge with endometriosis research is that it is massively underfunded. It's one of the most underfunded diseases that there is. Um, A lot of underfunded diseases tend to be those that disproportionately impact women. And so really excited that, you know, endometriosis is getting more attention now. People are talking about it more and hopefully that will, you know, lead to more funding for this, you know, really devastating disease, which is having a horrid impact on millions of women over the world.
0: Talk to me about single cell genomics and how this technology may provide some answers.
1: So we were incredibly excited with the advent of this kind of transformative new technology of single cell genomics. So whereas before we would take a piece of tissue, so a, a diseased tissue or a normal tissue, and it would all get mushed up and then we'd just take one measurement of the gene expression in that sample or the DNA or, you know, other feature, other molecular profiles. Now we carefully tease out the cells, one cell at a time, and profile each of them individually. And so when you have a disease like endometriosis where multiple cell types all conspire together to make the disease happen, so as we talked about the immune cells, the epithelial cells, there's other cell types as well that all work together to make the disease what it is, you just can't understand that unless you have a technology like single cell genomics. And so we jumped very quickly to apply that technology to this disease because we knew it would just really open the door to properly understanding, you know, what does this disease look like at the molecular level? Because we really, you know, a year, year and a half ago, we had no idea um, what endometriosis cells looked like in this level of detail.
0: That technology you're talking about is is presumably um was presumably first aimed towards cancer because when you talk of different types of um cells um, being involved in the process, the first thing I thought of was this it, cancer is that that was that where this technology was developed to look at for the most part?
1: You know I think um, cancer has certainly benefited a lot from the insights we we are getting from single cell genomics but also human development and organ development which again is um, lots of different cells working together and actually um, when we look at disease often that's development gone wrong and so these developmental processes you see you know re-emerge or re-emerge in the incorrect way in diseases like endometriosis and cancer and so those are the two concepts where it's really been applied most successfully early on Um, But I think diseases like endometriosis are actually um, the ones that are going to see the most benefit from this technology because we knew so little Mm. a couple of years ago. You know, with cancer, we actually had a lot of data from um, really large, you know, usually government-funded, large-scale studies looking at thousands of cancers across many different um, patients, many different patient populations. We just have not had that for endometriosis.
0: So what does single-cell genomics do for us then? What, what can we learn about endometriosis and how it, we might be able to prevent it?
1: So in our research, we are taking these data, these new insights, and really focusing on the two main clinical needs for endometriosis – the first is biomarkers. So, how can we use this information to find out what our endometriosis cells are regulating? What are they copiously spitting out that we might be able to detect in the blood?
0: Mm-hmm. And so, then- so, just to, to paint a picture yeah. for the listeners, you're talking mm-hmm. about these uh, these cells that might be expressing certain types of proteins, or they might behave in a certain way that allow that that um, creates a buildup or the release of certain. Hormones, molecules, uh, a- a- anything like that—that that you might then say, "Well, if that's happening there, then that's endometriosis." Is that the idea?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and so it might be. It really doesn't matter what the product is. In a way, it mm. might be proteins. It might even be DNA released from the cells. We're also interested in epigenetics, and sometimes you can see the epigenetic signatures of dead cells in the blood. And so we're taking really. Um, any any approach we're working with some experts around the world to apply now these different technologies that will build upon what the work that we've presented um, in our recent paper
0: um and so the work that you're doing uh, a lot of time we talk on this program about you know the molecular pathway but we don't really explain what exactly that means what is the molecular pathway and why is it important to understand it to understand endometriosis
1: that is a great question. Um, so all of our cells work with these proteins that talk to each other in pathways. That It's a lot like when you are um, setting your GPS to take you somewhere and you, know, you have to take a right turn and a left turn and a right turn and a left turn to get to your destination. But there's actually many different ways that you can get to your destination. And so cells use proteins in different ways, but sometimes those instructions get all scrambled up and we end up with a completely different output in a completely different destination. And often it can be the same, um, same parts of the cell, but being used in the wrong way. And so that's why we want to study proteins, not just one at a time, but how they're working together to um, have these pathways be activated or repressed. And when we get that, those processes happening in the wrong way, that's when we get cells behaving badly and that's when we get diseases occurring.
0: What's fascinating to me about this is that we're talking about single cell and, and that uh, raises a question of how do you identify the problematic cells when you go for a sample? Like how, I mean, that might be quite a technical question, but how do you identify the problematic cells? Because presumably you get millions of cells uh, if you take a sample or if you're examining um, a piece of tissue or a blood sample.
1: So that's a great question. We have a data set in the lab now that's over a million cells, and how do we know what each cell is and what it's doing? And so we have a process by which we can take what we would call kind of prototypic markers. So we know that an epithelial cell should always have keratin, for example, and we know that an immune cell will always have, you know, a certain suite of markers that tell us what its job is. Hmm. And so we take that that information to assign identities to each cell and then we go deeper into what it's doing within the different contexts. So if we compare endometriosis to endometrium, we look at all the cells that are epithelial cells. How are they different in those two different contexts?
0: Right. When you go and narrow in so finely to a single cell Is it difficult to fully understand its role in the larger system of the body? Uh, We were talking on the program a few months ago about um, an approach to sort of radically change how we teach and learn medicine, uh, where uh, the the, the guest we had was proposing that we should really be looking at systems rather than individual problems in the heart or in the liver or because Mm -hmm. most of these are are linked to greater systems, and the problems are sometimes just symptoms rather than uh, uh, you, know, you know the the wider issue at, at hand. And when you talked about endometriosis, you were saying that they're often hand in hand with lots of other things. Is there a, a is there a, a group that is looking at uh, the systemic um, relationship? Of, of endometriosis to other things? Is it possible that uh, endometriosis is a symptom of something that is happening elsewhere in the body or, um, or is there a systematic a- approach to understanding end- endometriosis that's going on, do you know?
1: Yeah, so I think a systematic kind of body-wide approach to understanding endometriosis is really important. When we do our single-cell genomics or any, you know, assay um, on endometriosis, we're very careful to take into account that the whole patient. Does this patient have an autoimmune condition? Um, for example, um, are there any other what we call comorbidities that might be impacting the disease in that patient? Hmm. I think with endometriosis, we're really kind of at the, now the forefront of starting to put together someone's germline genetics. So your inherited DNA can tell us a lot about your risk profile for certain
0: conditions,
1: and then also how that overlaps with other traits. And so we're working with colleagues now to start to understand potentially causal relationships between endometriosis and other conditions that might tend to co-occur. And so that's one avenue that we and others are taking. And then I think the other um, avenue where this is really important is understanding the pain experienced by endometriosis patients.
0: Mm.
1: So we know that they often have centralized pain sensitization, so where pain in other parts of the body also become, or pain responses become heightened other parts of the body. And so that really um, means that we have to study, well, what's happening in the brain? How is the brain processing pain differently in these patients? And is that a cause of endometriosis or is it a consequence of endometriosis? And there's some really clever researchers exploring um, that avenue as well.
0: When I, I speak to scientists who are so narrowly focused on one uh, on one small part of of even a, a single condition, it really does give me a sense of awe to the amount of knowledge that we've built up over many decades of science. You know, when you talk about this one small Lego brick in the giant wall of our understanding of how the human body works, it, it, it's it's amazing to uh, to see the persistence that, that that scientists have to to really just zero in on one problem and try and fix it. And overall, hopefully, um, we'll be able to, 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 you know, to fix the problem due to the work of hundreds or sometimes thousands of scientists. It's very cool. So lovely to speak with you. And thanks very much for getting up so early to do so, uh, Dr. Kate <laughs> Lawrenson, uh, who's from the Cedars-Sinai Hospital in L.A. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. Really interesting programme this week. I hope you'll agree. Uh, If you would like to comment, you can email us science at newstalk.com and we get to all of that in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free in the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thanks to Maurice O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland.
0: Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.